Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, again, good morning. It is the joy of my heart to be with you all this morning as we continue in a unique sermon series. It's a short one, but a good one. It's a series that I've entitled, Together We Transform. Together We Transform. And I'm doing something now that I've never done before. Uh, Most of you who were in the business meeting last month, you saw me present a new church covenant. Well, now I'm walking through the covenant, preaching what this transformation is all about. Preaching what this transformation is all about. Because here's what I believe. The goal of the Christian life ought to be that, that word transformation. All right, sometimes we make the goal of the Christian life our salvation, but salvation's the beginning of the Christian life, not the end of it. And then some of us also make moral reform the goal of the Christian life. And moral reform is a byproduct of it, but it's not the ultimate goal. God's plan for your life is to make you more like His Son. We ought to have the thoughts of Jesus and the heart of Jesus and the hands and feet of Jesus. And that is why our mission statement here at Cedar Street Baptist Church, I'll give you the full mission statement. Dave gets the shortened version on Sunday mornings. But I casted this vision my very first week as your pastor. Here's our mission statement. Cedar Street Baptist Church exists to glorify God and advance His heavenly kingdom here on earth By making Christian disciples whose heads, hearts, and hands are being transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. The goal of your life is to become like Christ. And as we walk into this room every single Sunday, and for those that volunteer every single Wednesday, and we go to our Sunday school classes, and we open up the Bible, and we follow our reading plans, and we gather for Bible studies in people's homes, the reason that we do this is because we want the Word of God to enter our hearts. And the Word of God with the Spirit of God changes the person of God to be like the Son of God. God wants to make you more like His Son. We ought to be at a church that you can look at me and I can look at you and I can say, I see more of Christ in you now than I did a year ago. When I stood behind this pulpit in August of 2016 as your pastor for the very first time, you ought to be able to look at me and say, I see more of Christ in you. I see more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit, and they represent Jesus Christ. And we ought to be able to see that in each other. And so that's our mission. Our vision is to become a church of Christian disciples whose thoughts, words, and actions reflect the image of Jesus Christ and represent new life in the kingdom of God. One thing that uh, Jody sang beautifully in that song is that when you're a part of the kingdom of God, once you're born again and you're saved and you're a part of the kingdom, you're a son and a daughter of the one true God and you cannot lose that sonship once you are His and you're in His hand. And so when people walk into this room, they ought to feel that they're in a different place, that we're not like the rest of the world. The body of Christ is different. It's set apart. We've been redeemed, covered in the blood of Christ, and we ought to have a hunger for more people to join the family. We're being transformed. So that's our mission and our vision. Now we have a covenant. And as I said last week in our bylaws, we have a covenant from 1853 that many Baptist churches have used, and it was a great covenant. It served a great purpose. But our long-range planning committee got together over the course of several months, and we worked on a new covenant, a new agreement, a new set of standards that we can hold each other accountable and grow and transform to become more like Christ. And so we've been walking through bit by bit parts of this new covenant. In fact, tonight we're going to fully, hopefully approve it if there's any 
people in the room that don't like the covenant, tonight's going to be your last night to have a word about it. But as I walk through it, we're going to be talking about spiritual disciplines, things that we can do to partner with God as He moves in our hearts to change us and make us more like Christ. This is something I mentioned last week. I didn't understand when I first became a believer. I first became a Christian in 2007 when I was living in Augusta, Georgia, and then I moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I met with all these pastors, and I would say to them, I would say, if, if, if growing to be more like Jesus is an act of grace, if it's all God working inside of me, then what do I do? What do I do, and what does God do? Do I just sit on a lawn chair and say, okay, God, change me? Or do I actually participate? Even if it's a work of God, what is my role in my growth? And it wasn't until years later and I began to come across some great teaching and read some great books and then great professors at places like the Guido Bible College and at Southeastern Seminary where these men poured into me and they said, you need to learn the gift of spiritual disciplines. And the example I used last week of what a spiritual discipline is, is this. Last week I said, if you were here, that we need to think about spiritual disciplines like a golf club. Now, if I handed you a golf ball and a golf club, and I said, you got, you got a choice. You can either throw the ball as far as you can physically throw it, or I'll let you use the club to hit it. Which one would you choose? Well, unless you really cannot hit a ball straight, all right? The golf club is made in such a way that you can hit it further with the club than you can if you throw it yourself. So it's the club that does the work. I can only throw a golf ball maybe 100 yards if, I'm, if I, my arm doesn't fall off. But I, you know, and I'm not going to tell you how far I can hit it because, again, I don't hit it as straight as I would like to, all right? But I can hit it a lot further than I can throw it, and the reason why is it's the club that does the work, but it's my job to get the club in the right position to do what it was made to do. And what spiritual disciplines do, it enables you to get in the right position for God to do His work. It's the work of God for you to become more like Christ, even to believe in Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But you put yourself in the ideal position, which again, one of those disciplines is corporate worship. So coming here today and sitting under the preaching of the Word of God, you're putting yourself in position for the Word of God to go out, and as it says in Isaiah, to not return void, that the Word of God will do what it intends to do, and it will change hearts. And then we engage in these disciplines week after week and we begin to change. That's the beauty of the Christian life is that we do, in fact, begin to change. And before we we open up the text, I just want to say that we can do the right things with the wrong spirit. We can do the right things with the wrong spirit. Spiritual disciplines are things that we need to do, but we need to do them with the right spirit. I'm going to give you three quick examples of how in the Scriptures, the Pharisees, those who were the keepers of the Old Testament law, This is how they missed it when Jesus came, and they're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Now, think about the Pharisees for a minute. One of the things they did was they memorized Scripture. Now, we should memorize the Scripture so that we know who God is, and He can change our hearts from the inside out. But the Pharisees memorized Scripture because they wanted to stand on the street corner and spout out how many verses they knew so they could be seen as holy and righteous. All right, what about praying? We ought to pray fervently. We'll talk about that at the end of the message here today. And pray fervently that God would do a work in our life and do a work in the lives of those whom we love. But the Pharisees would pray publicly so people would look at them and say, wow, look at that five-minute prayer. How holy is he that he could pray for five whole minutes without stopping? And I'll give you one more, fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Fasting is when you willfully take a break from food 
and empty yourself of everything but God, that every time you feel a hunger pang, you call out to the Lord and say, God, I want to hunger after you the way I hunger after this food. It's a spiritual discipline because Jesus himself fasted. He went into the wilderness and fasted for many days as he prepared for earthly ministry. But the Pharisees, when they fasted, they would wince their faces and so that you could tell they were fasting. So people would say, oh, look how holy are the Pharisees. They're fasting. Oh, that they could give up food. They're so disciplined. So you see, we could do the right things with the wrong spirit. I love what John Ortberg says about spiritual disciplines. He says, a disciplined person is someone who could do the right thing at the right time in the right way for the right reason. That's what we want here as a church family. We want to do spiritual disciplines that help us to grow and be more like Christ, but we want to do them in the right spirit. Let me just say, I don't care how much scripture you read, I don't care how often you pray, I don't care how much you fast, that will not gain righteous standing before God. You will not gain any favor. God cannot love you any more or any less based on doing these things. It is all an act of grace. But when you do those things, when you read the scriptures, and when you pray, and when you fast, and when you come to church faithfully week after week, you're, the go- you're, you're basically the golf ball, and you're putting yourself in the position for the Holy Spirit, who's the golf club, to do what He does. Because only the Spirit of God can bring about that change. So we need to surrender to these beautiful disciplines, and our new church covenant is going to enable us to do that. Now last week, we talked about this transformation of the mind, all right? Because it's heads, hearts, and hands. And and I did not make this up, by the way. This is how it works. Even non-Christians would admit this. If you want to change, it will always start by how you think. And that is why in Romans chapter 12 that we walked through last week, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by thinking the way Jesus thinks, by looking at the world through the lens of the Word of God, that when we watch the news, we don't walk around like a chicken with our heads cut off because we know there's a sovereign God who's in control of the universe and He's taking good out of evil And all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. As it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that what God, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. And so we know God's bringing good out of it. Last week I mentioned the way a non-believer would look at Hurricane Michael is to just weep and look at over all the, the tragedy and all the devastation where a Christian can look at it and say, number one, I get to go and serve these people and shine the light of Christ in their life. But number two, out of this devastation, there are some people that will come to faith in Jesus because God sometimes has to strip us down to the bare studs to build us back up again. So we need to see everything through the lens of the scriptures and be renewed in our minds. But it can't stop here. If we gain a lot of knowledge of this book and it stops here and it doesn't make it here, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if we have nothing but knowledge and it never makes its way here, we're going to walk around with arrogance and pride. And guess what? If you've never seen that, I welcome you to take a class at a seminary. Because there's a lot of young men and women at seminary that their intellect has has far exceeded their spiritual maturity. So they're filling their head with more knowledge than their heart can keep up with. And so they walk around like a bunch of Pharisees. Now, I'm not here to cast stones. I'm sure there are times in my life where I've struggled with that too. Because as we learn all this new information, we're so excited we want to share it with people that we can start to get prideful. But we need to ask the Spirit of God to take that knowledge and bring it from our head to our heart so it changes who we are. 
And then it changes what we do and the love that we have for people and the way that we sacrifice for people. It should change our existence, our eternity. This is not just to pass a test. I'm not getting a master's degree at a seminary just to have a degree on the wall. Our head knowledge ought to change our heart. And that's what I want to talk about here today. Let me just say a word about the human heart. The Bible talks about the heart in a deeper way than the world does. Okay? Sometimes I think we have what's called a Valentine's Day understanding of the human heart. We think of the heart as that little conversation heart that you used to get in Valentine's Day. Uh, it's a lot deeper than that. Your heart, according to the Bible, is not just your emotions, although they come from the heart. Your heart, according to the Scriptures, is the steering wheel of your soul. It's your being. It is why the prophet Samuel would say that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. He looks at the real you. He looks past the exterior to who you really are, and that's your heart. Your heart is what you love most, what you fear most, and what you desire most. That is your heart, and that is what Christ is after. That's why Jody sang this morning, we're going back to the heart of worship because it's all about Him. He wants our heart. He wants to change it and transform it from the inside out. That's our heart. Now, the Bible tells us to guard our heart because it's Him that wants to change it. I said last week out of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the Scripture says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Guess what that means? Whatever you put in your mind will eventually make its way to your heart, and from your heart is who you really are. It will flow the springs of life. So if you're constantly exposing yourself to ungodly things, even if it's just things you watch or that you read, they'll corrupt the heart. And that will become who you truly are. And that's why we have to transform our minds and then transform our hearts. Now, we're called to guard our hearts, but God is the one that can transform them. That's what I'm going to talk about here today. So, you see the title of the message, Together We Will Show the Heart of Christ. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And uh, our big idea in one sentence, what do I want us to see as we open up the text? In one sentence, I would say this. Gospel transformation in the Christian life always moves from our head to our heart. Let me say it again. Gospel transformation in the Christian life always moves from our head to our heart. To our heart. God never casts head knowledge to not make it down the interstate to our heart. All right, so we're going to do some interstate traveling from here to here. And I hope that God will lead us in this journey. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be on page 1147 in your Pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Again, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Hear God's word to us, starting in verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. For we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, again, we love you. And we just thank you and praise you for the day that you've made. Father, I just I plead for your spirit as we walk through the text here that we would consider the work of the Holy Spirit and the changing of our heart to be more like your Son. Father, we know that the changing of the heart, the transformation of our soul is your work alone, but that we do things to put ourselves in position for you to do that. So, Father, position us here this morning. Open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth of this, that we may respond to it in repentance and faith. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. So we are in the book of 2 Corinthians in, in the fourth chapter, okay, this is another letter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. I don't have a, a lot of time to walk through the background, but what I will say, and any of you that have studied First and Second Corinthians, you would know that the church at Corinth was a church with a lot of problems, all right? Every single congregation that has ever existed in the body of Christ has their warts and their wrinkles. We have ours, they have theirs. I'm grateful that we do not have the exact same warts and wrinkles that, that the church at Corinth did. They had quite a few of them. But even in that, is in the second letter uh, from Paul to the church at Corinth, we see in chapter 4, he starts talking about this light of the gospel. That in this church that practiced all kinds of darkness, there was this radiant light, this message that Paul came with as he was traveling all over the world, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that I'm entrusting this message to you, that you will have the heart of Christ and you'll be going out and sharing this same light to a dark world that needs to know it. And in looking at these six verses, I just want to share share three things, all right? As we want to show the heart of Christ, we must do three things. And the first of those three is this, verses 1 through 2, to show the heart of Christ, we must share God's truth. Share God's truth. Listen to verses 1 through 2 again. It says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. All right, Paul's talking about what ministry? In, the, in verse 1, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God. What ministry is he talking about? He's talking about the new covenant. All right, the new covenant, the entire New Testament, the good news that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law of Moses and that through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ we're offered eternal salvation. This was earth-shattering news that he lived perfectly the way that we should have lived died sacrificially the death that we deserved, rose from the dead three days later, making a way from death to life, ascended to the Father, sending down His Holy Spirit. This is all good news. And as God gives us this good news, Paul's saying, this ministry to share the good news has been entrusted to me, but now that I've told you, it's been entrusted to you. Go and share the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, we have to renounce the self-centered truth of the world, and we have to tell the world that our life is not about us anymore. It's about Jesus. He lived for us, so it's about Him. He died for us, so it's about Him. He rose for us, so it's about Him. He went to the Father and sent down His Spirit for us, so it's about Him. That's gospel truth, and that's what we need to be sharing. And it says, we don't lose heart. We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We've renounced anything that would make our life about us. 
and we stand firm on doing one thing. We no longer practice cunning. We don't tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In, in plain English terms, we simply stand up and share the unfiltered truth of God to the world that needs to hear it. This is what God has called us to do. And guess what? A lot of the Christian world is not doing that. Either A, they're not sharing the truth, or worse, B, they're sharing an altered version of the truth. That's why Peter, or Paul says here, don't tamper with the Word of God. And, this is, and I know you feel like this is a hobby horse for me, but I get on this quite a bit. Television preachers today, they'll take the Word of God and they'll twist it in such a way to make you feel like God's job is to be a cosmic genie, to pour out every blessing and give you great health and great wealth. Your season's coming if you just believe. That's not what that book teaches. It's not. The book teaches that we're called to sacrificially love the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is through suffering that we join Him on that Calvary road of becoming more like His Son. And He does pour out many blessings. I will say this. There are many blessings that He'll pour out that we need to celebrate, but sometimes we miss those blessings because there are people not teaching the truth. The truth is we need to love Him and celebrate that He Himself is the blessing. Not what he can give us, but who he is. If you had, remember I said a couple weeks ago, that math equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If I had Jesus, I have everything I need. He will be my bride for, or he'll be my bridegroom and we'll be his bride for all of eternity. We will be married to the Christ. All we need is Jesus. And we need to share that truth with the world that needs to hear it. Because the world has been tampering with this for a very, very long time. And so this open statement of the truth, what do we tell the world? I think we need to tell them about the person of Christ, and then I think we need to tell them about the gospel of Christ. Let me start with the person of Christ, because I believe if I handed out a sheet of paper and I took a survey, not just in this room, but even in this community, and I say, write down on a sheet of paper, who's Jesus and what is he like? I think I'd get a lot of answers that would trouble me. All right, because the world turns Jesus into so many different things. Jesus is a political activist. Jesus is a hippie. Jesus is this or Jesus is that. The Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus that we worship. And we need to know who that is. Well, first of all, I think there's one foundational text, and I know I'll get a smile at least from Sarah Gillis because she says I say this every week. But in John chapter 1, verse 14, we learn that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Here's what it says. And the Word became flesh... Okay, Jesus is the Word, the logic of God, who put on flesh and bones. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, and, and I've talked at many length about, as a church, we need to be a church of grace and truth, because here's what happens. If we're all grace and no truth, we'll never call out sin, and we won't stand for anything. But if we're all truth and no grace, we'll use this Bible as a theological revolver and we'll pistol whip people with it. And this book was not meant to drive people away. It was meant to pull people towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to balance grace and truth because in Jesus is that perfect balance of grace and truth. All right, there are people that will tell you that Jesus is grace. And we sang that, that beautiful song that Jody sang. There's grace there. 
If you're a child of the Most High God and you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've been born again, you cannot lose that. That amazing grace that says all the sin that you've fallen into, though there be consequences, one of those consequences is you can't be separated from His love. In Christ, there's nothing you could do to make Him love you more and there's nothing that you've done that would make Him love you less. That's good news. That's grace. But there's also truth. The truth is, though God offers that love to everyone, not everyone has received that love. Because to receive that love, you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus and confess that you're a sinner that needs to be saved. The Bible says you must confess with your tongue that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. Christ died for everyone to hear that message. But not everybody receives that message. Therefore, they do not know the grace of God, because they're not willing to admit the truth of God. We need to share that message with love and sacrifice and prayer. We need to share that message. All right? He became flesh. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. That's who Christ is. And then what about the message of Christ? Here's what Jesus said. This is not popular in 2018, but this is not my words. This is Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? In, in 2018 in this country, that is not a politically correct statement. It's just not. Who are you to say a good Muslim won't go to heaven? Who are you to say a good Buddhist won't go to heaven? I didn't say it. Jesus did. Because Jesus said, there is no good Buddhist, there is no good Mormon, and there is no good Christian. There is nobody good, no, not one. And here's why. When we die, God will not judge us by the standards of other human beings. You're not going to stand next to God and Him judge you on a bell curve that you were better than your neighbor because you did good moral acts. You will be judged by the standard of perfection. And if any of you have ever committed even one sin, you will not enter the kingdom of God because that's how holy He is. But here's the thing. God who's holy and cannot be around sin is still loving and He wants you to be with Him. So how do you avoid the conflict? He's holy and we can't be in His presence, but He's loving and He wants you to come. How does he reconcile it? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. He lived perfectly, taking care of our righteousness. He died sacrificially, taking all of our penalties. That's why we celebrate on Easter morning when he's risen. The penalty of our sins been paid. So when you give your life to his lordship, when you die and stand before God, God will actually look at you and declare you perfect because you've been covered in his blood. That's the beauty of the gospel. And by the way, if we really believe this, there wouldn't be an arrogant Christian in the world because we got nothing to brag about. We didn't do anything. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. It's all a work of Christ. And my life belongs to him. I'm nothing but a sinner before him. As Larry Sykes says every week, if he dies before I do, Larry, I'm going to put this on your gravestone, brother. A sinner saved by grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Would grace be amazing if the salvation of Christ was just one of many different ways in which you could get to God? Would, you, would God have sent his own son to die if he was just one of five different routes to get to the Father? Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. That means at the end of time, Jesus, and it even in the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, all of us have to stand before God and say, do we believe that or don't we? I believe it because Jesus said it, and that's why I believe it. 
So, number one, to share the heart of Christ, we must share God's truth. We need to do it in a loving way. We need to do it in a prayerful way, not in an arrogant way. Sometimes you can say the right thing in the wrong way. Christians are some of the most arrogant people sometimes. And it, and it crushes the work that God wants to do. Because, again, if we believe this message, we've got nothing to be arrogant about. All we did, you know, Dave says it perfectly, and I agree with Dave. All Christianity is is one beggar who's been fed offering another beggar that same bread. That's what it is. I'm a beggar. I got fed by Jesus. You want to eat the same bread? It's free of charge. Come and get it. Free of charge. So, to share the heart of Christ, we must share God's truth. All right, we also must seek God's glory. Number two, we must seek God's glory. Listen to verses three through five. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is sad but true. It says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Who's the God of this world? It's Satan. When someone fully rejects Jesus Christ, it is because Satan has blinded them to see the truth. He has forced them to look at themselves instead of look at God. He's been doing it since the very beginning of time. God created us in such a way that our life was never meant to be about us. It was always meant to be about God because when it's about God, we can always make much of Him. But if it's about us, there's a limit to how big we can make it because God is infinitely big and we're infinitely not big. All right? Here's the best way I know how to explain it because years ago I did not understand this, and I think I shared this a few weeks ago. But I heard a pastor finally make this clear, and it made so much sense to me. Here's what he said. He said that... um, if, why does God create people in his image to come and worship him? Is he insecure? Does he need us to worship him? And the answer is no. Bubba said it perfectly. He does not need us to do anything. But why does he do it? Here's what I believe. In eternity past, when the Father, Son, and Spirit, one God represented in three persons, were together in perfect unity, what, what God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit all said to themselves is this. We are so great and perfect we do not want to keep ourselves all to ourselves. We want to create an, a creature in our image to come and enjoy us. Worship is not a, is not, it's a privilege to come and enjoy that some, there's something greater than yourself. And all of you know this to go on vacation to the Grand Canyon or wherever you go. You want to stand on the edge of something that's more magnificent than you are and you want to call out how great it is and take pictures and put it on Facebook and tell everybody that you were there. Because you're wired to celebrate something bigger than yourself. God's saying, I wired you that way. Just make sure that when you see the Grand Canyon, you say, how great is God? That he would create something so majestic and beautiful. But what we do, instead of praising God, we praise the Grand Canyon. How beautiful are those rocks? Praise the rocks. And God's saying, um, I did that. I'm the artist here. I did that so you could praise me, not the rocks. Enjoy the rocks and praise me. In fact, there's, we're going to talk about this tonight at 5 o'clock, so come to this another teaser for happiness tonight. Because when we start praising the rocks more than we praise Jesus, that's called idolatry. When we make a God, we make a good thing a God thing. Everything that we enjoy should magnify our love and our worship of God because our life is no longer about us. 
It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5, here's what he says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Our life is no longer our own. It is no longer, and we belong to Jesus. Now, I don't say this with joy in my heart, but I am going to say this. There's one equalizer I've experienced in my three years of pastoral ministry, two plus years. There are a lot of people who say they know Jesus and love Jesus. I'm going to tell you what the equalizer is, is hospice. All right, it's not my favorite place to go, although I will say the one in Statesboro is one of the nicest ones I've ever been in. But I have been bedside with many, many people over the years, many. And I've held the hand of someone who knows Jesus. And I've held the hand of those that say they know him but don't. And I've held the hand of ones that outwardly say they reject him. And I'm going to tell you there's a peace of God that comes only from knowing the Lord Jesus. You can say that you know him, or you can even say that you reject what he says, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that, and that you're going to go to heaven in your own merit. Everybody can say that for a season, but the great equalizer is death because we're all going to face it. And when we face it, I've seen it in the eyes of those that know Jesus. They go to heaven with a smile and a peace that did not come from their flesh and blood, but it came from the Spirit of God. And then I've seen those terrified in their final moments because they knew deep in their heart their lives did not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives must belong to him. We must seek the glory of God, not our own glory. The transformation of the heart is that every day that we wake up, our life is not about us. It doesn't mean we're called to a miserable life. It means we're called to a sacrificial life. But even in the sacrifice, all over the Bible, you'll see people rejoicing in a greater way than if their life was ever about them. Because when it's about us, there's a limit. But when it's about God, it's unlimited. It's a beautiful thing. And I just want you to think about Jesus himself, who's the portrait of humility. Do you know I searched the New Testament. There's only one verse that actually talks about the heart of Jesus explicitly. You know what that verse is? It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 29. And in verse 29, he says, For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come to me and you will have rest for your souls. That's the only verse in the New Testament that talks specifically about the heart of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm lowly, that I've, I've denied myself and I make it all about the Father. Well, we should deny ourselves and make it all about the Lord. Because that would be the heart of Christ, self-sacrifice, for the love of others. That is who Christ is. And if we have his heart, not only are we going to share God's truth, we're also going to seek God's glory and not our own. <clears throat> and third and finally, as we wind down the text, not only do we share God's truth and seek God's glory, we also shine God's light. Listen to verse 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. To put it in 2018 terms, we are called to be God's LED bulbs. We're called to shine a radiant light to a dark universe that desperately needs Jesus. And we need to shine that light in each other's lives. Can I tell you something? I maybe have mentioned this before, but the closer I get to God, the more his radiant light shines in the darkest places of my heart and mind. That's why when we have time to confess, I don't ever struggle with what I need to confess. Years ago, when I was a Lutheran and we would go through that every week, I remember being in worship thinking, did I really sin at all this week? Whereas now I'm aware of when my thoughts or my heart are not right with God and, and I realize what a joy, not an obligation or a burden, but a privilege to confess and be washed new 
and have this wonderful opportunity to worship Him. We need to shine God's light. We need to be the ones to walk into darkness and shine light. We ought to be the type of Christian that when you walk into the room, the demeanor of the room changes. Can you honestly say, I mean, everyone in this room can say we know someone like that, right? Someone in our life who when they walked into the room, it's like light came in. I want to be that person. I'm not saying I am, but I want to be. And I would pray that all of you would want to be that person too, that the, the heart of Jesus would beat in your chest so brightly and so powerfully. The love that you would have for another human being, even if they don't agree with you, even if, even if, they, don't, even if they fully reject what you believe, that you would look at them with such love. They would say, I don't agree with them, but man, I sure wish I had what they had. You know, I remember years ago when I didn't fully believe in all the things that I'm preaching now, but I would come across God, godly, genuine Christians who did, and I would say, I don't believe what they believe, but I sure want what they have. I want that. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be the light of Christ, the shine in the darkest places of this world? It's what God's called us to. So to share the heart of Christ, we must share God's truth, we must seek God's glory, and we must shine God's light. To, to bring all this to a close, to sum it up in one sentence, here's what I would say. To have Christ's heart... We must develop disciplines that help us see the world through Christ's eyes. To have Christ's heart, we must develop disciplines that help us see the world through Christ's eyes. How do we do that? Real quickly, four practical ways that are in the church covenant that we're uh, hopefully going to approve here tonight. First, we, we show the heart of Christ by worshiping God together corporately. I love this. I heard a pastor say this not too long ago. He said, there's something beautiful about broken people worshiping a healing Savior. That's a testimony. If somebody walks in here, they've never heard the gospel, but they come in and see broken people with tears flowing down their face, crying out in praise for what God has done in their life. That's a testimony. It's powerful. And it cultivates the heart of Christ. God can do more together than He can apart. In a few moments, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And let me say this. Yes, we ought to have quiet alone time with God, just between us and God in prayer. We should. Jesus got a way to be alone with God. But there is a sweet manifestation of the presence of God when the people of God come together and do something like communion than when they're apart. I had a man in a wedding a few weeks ago tell me, well, what you have at that church, I can have by myself with God in the boat. No, you can't. It's not God's will. God didn't just redeem uh, individuals. He redeemed a church. And Jesus loves his church. All right? He loves all the denominations of his church. And he comes and, he worship, and we worship and he gathers and he manifests his sweet presence. I believe when we partake of communion in a few moments, there will be a sweet presence of Jesus Christ that I cannot manufacture with human effort. It only happens when the people of God come together to administer an ordinance. So we worship God together corporately. We also seek God together through prayer fervently. The Bible says to pray without ceasing, to have a, a prayer life that lasts all day long. It doesn't mean that we're on our knees for 15 hours, but it means every hour of the day we're reminding ourselves, Jesus is here. He's with us. Yesterday, you know, I just had a sweet day with my wife and my mother and my, and my daughter, and we're riding on a hayride out there in the, in the pumpkin patch, and there was a moment... I'm sure you guys maybe thought I was nuts. You maybe see me talking under my breath, but I'm saying thank you for being here, Jesus. He's there when my daughter picks up this pumpkin for the first time and just lights up like a Christmas tree. 
All right, he's, he's there when we're having a wonderful dinner together and we pray a blessing over the food. Jesus is there. And so a prayer life, yes, is a time where we confess sin, but it's also a time where we just talk to Jesus. We thank Him for being with us. And we look forward to doing things that draw Him close to us. So we worship God together corporately. We seek God through prayer fervently. We love God and others sacrificially. Again, love is not just an emotion. It's a commitment. I wish people would get this. When I do premarital counseling, I say it all the time. It is humanly impossible to fall out of love with someone. That's a Hollywood concept, not a Bible concept. You may have, your emotions for them may have changed, but love is a sacrificial commitment to the greater good of another person. And that's the love that Christ has. That's the love that you have for your children or your grandchildren. There's a lot of things they could do to tick you off. There's a lot of things they could do to greatly disappoint you, but there's nothing they could do to change your love for them. And that's the love that we should have for one another. That's the love that we should have for non-believers, those who spit in the face of Christ. We ought to lovingly share the truth, but then, then labor for them in prayer. And continue to love them and share God's light with them, not, not debate them. So we worship God together corporately. We seek God through prayer fervently. We love God and others sacrificially. And then finally, we forgive others gracefully. We forgive others gracefully. I don't care what's been done to you. If you can't forgive, then you don't know what you've done to God, yet He's forgiven you. If you can't offer grace to others, you don't know the grace God's offered you. I don't think we'll fully understand until we're in the kingdom of God what we really deserved, but what we received through the grace of God for those that place their faith in the Lord Jesus. We can't fathom what Jesus went through on the cross. I mean, we can't. Hour after hour, not just the physical pain, but the separation from the Father as He was pouring out His wrath for the sins of mankind on the Son. And Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that because everyone in this room had sin that was worthy of condemning us forever. But He did that for us. And if He did that for us, how much more should we be able to forgive others for sin that is not as deep? I don't care what's been done to you. If you can't forgive somebody else, then you don't understand the forgiveness that God has given to you. We as a church, we need to practice that. 